In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we ourselves, left to ourselves, are very inconsistent people. We are duplicitous. We do not live what we claim to believe. Lord, I pray that we today would be convicted by our inconsistencies and that we would have a wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ and that we, Lord, would reflect that in the way that we live. Uh, This is not going to happen, Lord, unless you move in our hearts. And so today I would pray, dear God, that you would cause us to be wholly devoted to yourself. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We're working our way through the book of Judges. Um, As we move our way through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, please note the outline of the book. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2, that is pretty much the introduction to the book. Chapters 3 through 16, well, those are the Judges. And we just finished chapter 16, so now we are out of Judges. We're not studying any more Judges. And then chapters 17 through 21 is an epilogue. And in this epilogue, there are two stories. We're going to be looking at one of those stories today, which encompasses chapters 17 and 18. Uh, The book of Judges, with its repetition we have seen in the main body of the book. That's over with now. The book continues to be rough. There's going to be a slaughter of an entire village today. The book is rhetorical. Probably what we read today did not happen after Judges 16. It probably happened sometime during the time of the Judges. And indeed, it is redemptive in that it tells us that there is a need for a king, and that king is Jesus. So today, chapters 17 and 18, our approach today is that we are going to go through each verse, both chapters, a total of 44 verses, uh, verse by verse, sort of with a running commentary on each verse. And then once we have the facts in our minds, I'm going to uh, lead us to consider two main points. And those two main points today are number one, the form or the appearance of godliness, and number two, the reality of godliness. But before I dive into the actual reading, there are a couple of interpretive keys which are going to help us unlock the text, and they are the formula and the facts, the formula and the facts. Now, there's a formula which appears four times in the epilogue to the book. Uh, The epilogue, chapters 17 through 21. Uh, An an epilogue is simply uh, a section at the end of a book or a play that serves to comment on or to give a conclusion to what has already happened. And there's a formula that occurs four times. It speaks of the fact that there is no king and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Take a look at the formula as it appears in this epilogue. Chapter 17, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then again in the last verse of the book, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The reason that this formula is important as we read the text is not because it is just a historical marker which says that there was no king at this time, but it's saying something much deeper and more profound than that, and that is that there was no spiritual leadership in Israel during those days. And the result of having no spiritual leadership is that people just make up their own rules and they worship God and they live however they want to. We are going to see that that is the case in our story today. So allow the formula to assist you in understanding that everybody is just sort of doing whatever it is that they want to do because there's no spiritual leader or king in Israel. Notice also not only the formula, but as we read through, please understand that we are going to be looking at the facts, the facts and nothing but the facts. Uh, Our spirit-inspired author of the book of Judges today 
in the writing of chapter 17 and 18 offers no judgment, no moral evaluation, no instruction, no commands, no affirmation, no criticism. That is left entirely up to the reader. Now, there will be characters in the story that we read today who say different things and make different moral evaluations, but the author says absolutely nothing. He is just reporting the facts. Jack Friday, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. He is simply reporting what happened, and the evaluation is left entirely up to the reader. And you will see from the facts that the facts will speak for themselves that things were in a deplorable condition during the days of the judges. With those two interpretive keys in place, let's move through the text, 44 verses, verse by verse, so that you understand actually what happened. Chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Ephraim at the time was the largest of the tribes. It was the most powerful of the 12 tribes. And this man Micah, his name means who is like God. Verse 2, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you or stolen from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoken in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. So what do you have? You have a woman who's got a lot of money, 1,100 pieces of silver, at least several hundred thousand dollars, and it gets stolen. And she says to her son, cursed be the person who stole this from me. And he has uh, uh, a problem with his conscience. He goes to his mother. He doesn't get caught. He goes to his mother and says, well, you know that money that was stolen? I'm the one that stole it. And she blesses him and forgives him for stealing from her. Verse number three. And he restored or gave back the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. At this point, uh, if you are not confused, you're not paying attention because this is bizarre. She is dedicating it to the Lord for the purpose of making idols incongruent. Verse 4, so when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who gave it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. So she takes 200 of the 1,100. Where did the other 900 pieces go? We have no idea, but she takes 200 of the 900, and she dedicates it to the silversmith so that idols or gods can be make it made to be put in the house of Micah. The house of Micah is a sort of a it's, a, it's a very complex arrangement. It is his personal dwelling. It is, it is a place of worship. It is kind of a compound. Uh, there are idols there, household idols. There are more public idols. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on there, but 200 pieces of silver have been dedicated so that he can stockpile a few more idols in that place. Verse number five. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons to become his priest. So he's a very religious man. He's he's raising his son to be religious as well. And he's got these household gods. So the house of God has actually become a house of gods, plural. There's a lot of idolatry happening here. And there's this ephod. What is that for? Well, it was a vestment that would be worn by a priest so that the future could be determined. Remember that the Urim and the Thummim was something that Aaron was to wear in order to determine what the future would be. Well, here is an ephod in the hill country of of, um, uh, Ephraim, and at this time it is in the house of Micah and his son, who is not uh, qualified to be a priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi, is serving as the household priest for his father. Verse number six. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Did they ever? Now, verse number seven. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, 
who was a Levite, and he sojourned or temporarily traveled there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judea, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Do you understand what's happening here? There's a guy who is from the lineage of Levi, but yet he is living in Judah, in the tribe of Judah, in the little town of Bethlehem. And he says, O little town of Bethlehem, there is nothing going on here, so I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to go somewhere, and I'm going to make a life for myself. And he starts to head north, and he happens to come to the house of Micah. As he is in the house of Micah at this point, he uh, Micah says, oh, so you're a Levite. Hey, listen, I've got a job for you. Since you are a Levite, and you know that according to the law of Moses, if you wanted to serve as a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. He says, I got a job for you. You come, I'll pay you a good salary. I'll replace my son as being the priest. You can be the priest here. You will be a spiritual father to me, and I will be a financial father to you. And the priest, who is just looking to make a life for himself, says, yeah, I'm not going to get a better deal than this anywhere else. So he goes and he moves in with Micah, and Micah consecrates him. So now this is the second person that Micah has consecrated as a priest. And consecrating someone as a priest is not just like saying, poof, you're a priest. But consecrating someone as a priest is a very detailed process. It's spelled out in Exodus chapter 29, where there's a lot of, of, of elements to this ceremony of consecration. So both his son and this Levite have been consecrated as a priest. Micah is taking his religion very seriously. He hires this guy. This guy moves in with him, and all is well. Or so it seems in verse 13, when Micah says, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. This is the essence. This is the heart of the prosperity gospel. It says essentially this. God is going to bless me because I have been obedient to God. And I have been obedient to God because God has prescribed that priest be from the tribe of Levi. I got myself a Levite. Everything is going to be well with me. And God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who is going to bless me. Moving into chapter 18, let's continue the reading. In those days, there was no king in Israel, no spiritual oversight, no spiritual protection. And in those days, that is the days of the judges, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Don't misread this. This is not saying that Dan was not given any property in the allotment of the conquest when Joshua and the people came into the land. Dan was given property but they did not capitalize upon it because back in Judges chapter 1, verse 34, it says that the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country where they did not allow them to come down to the plain. Ridiculous. If they had come down into the plain, the Lord would have been with them because the Lord had given that land into their hand. But because they were afraid of the Amorites, they stayed up in the hill country. And as a result, they became small. They became insignificant. They became more of a clan than a tribe. And now they are sort of just huddled in this little place and they want to expand themselves. They want to make a life for themselves. Verse 2. So the people of Dan, here's, the, here's how they go about it. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and Eshtheol, to spy out the land and explore it. 
And they said, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. So we can't live here. If we're going to, if we're going to be somebody, we've got to expand. So let's take five representative, five spies to go out into the land and look for a good place for us to live. As they leave Dan in the south and they start making their way to the north, they happen to, as providence would have it, they happen to come upon the house of Micah and the young Levite who is living there with Micah. Continuing the reading in verse 3. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here, and what are you doing in this place, and what is your business here? So, They're just minding their own business. They're standing around in the courtyard, and all of a sudden they hear someone talking inside the house, and they say to one another, hey, I know that voice. I know that voice. Now, maybe they just recognized the accent, but I think they knew the voice. Several years ago, I was at a Georgia football game, and I, in the corridor, ran into a lady uh, whose son was a player, and her husband and I went to seminary together, and I said, where is your husband sitting? She said, oh, he's sitting up in section 333. So I went up into section 333, and I sat about three rows behind this man, and I didn't tell him that I was there. As his son was playing on the field, uh, his name was Watson, I said, come on, Watson, you're slow. Come on, Watson. You're a bum. Come on, Watson. Hustle. And I could see the back of his neck just, you know, starting to, to curl up as I'm criticizing his, his son. And a lady beside me says, this is the player's family section, and we don't usually criticize any of the players. And I said, well, I know that you usually don't, but if you just watch Watson, he's horrible. He's playing horribly out there. And all of a sudden, Ken Watson sitting there says, wait a minute. I know that voice. That's Ed Moore. (laughs) And he turned around. We had a good conversation. But he recognized my voice. These guys are standing in the courtyard. They hear someone talking in the house. They recognize his voice, and they say, What are you doing here? What in the world are you doing here? Continuing the reading in uh, uh, verse 4. And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me. I'm making a good living here. And I have become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. So now they are looking to the Lord, and they're wanting him to put the ephod into practice and to inquire of God whether or not this journey, this this spy um, uh, adventure that they are on is going to turn out for good. What does the priest say to them? Verse 6, and the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. God is looking after you. It's going to be a peaceful expedition. You can go in peace. Verse 7, verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So they leave and they make their way to this place called Laish. Let's look at the map and see what's going on here, how all of the players come into uh, into play. This is Micah's house right here. To the south, and that's in the hill country of Ephraim. To the south, there was Bethlehem, a little town of Bethlehem. This is where the priest grew up, and he says, this is a nothing town, i got to get out of here. He starts making his way north to make a name for himself, to make a life for himself, ends up in Micah's house. The tribe of Dan, which is between Eshtheol and Zoar, right here, and that, remember, is where Samson grew up, they start making their way north, and as they're making their way north to spy out the property, they make a stop overnight at the house of Micah. As they are there, they meet this priest that they knew from down in Bethlehem, and they he asked the, they asked the priest, hey, is everything going to be okay on this trip? The priest says, go your way, everything's going to be fine, and they make their way, way up north. You see it all the way to Laish up there. 
which is a long way away. Laish is even a long way away from the Sidonians. And even though their culture is that of the Sidonians, they have no protection. They have no dealings with anybody. They're peaceful people. They're unsuspecting people. They don't have an army, anything like that. These people are just going up to spy out the land. Now, did you notice, as I was reading verse 7, a very interesting element here? And that is that the five men departed, came to Laish, and what did they do when they were in Laish? They saw the people who were there. Who saw the people that were there? The men of Dan saw the people who were there. And so therefore, it can be said, Dan saw. Dan saw. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Make sure you tip your ushers. Okay. <laughs> verse 8, verse 8. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtheol, their brothers said to them, Well, how did it go? What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. For God, G-O-D, they are bringing God into this conversation. For God has given it, the city of Laish, into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So spies say, it's a great place. Let's go and attack them. They won't know we're coming. Verse 11. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war set out from Zoar and Eshtheol and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. That was also on the map. Uh, their stay there at Kiriath-Jerim was so significant that they renamed the place. On this account, that place is called Menaean Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Let's retrace our steps. Notice what's happening here once again on the map. As we follow them, these spies go up, they look at Laish, they come back down here to Dan, and they say, let's go up to Laish and let's take it. As they head off, they camp at Kiriath-Jerim, and they retrace their steps, and they get to the house of Micah again. This time, it's not just the five spies, but it is the 600 soldiers that are with them. And obviously, as we will learn, women and children, as they are going on their way to move permanently to the north. All right, continuing to read. Verse 11. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtiel, and they went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim and Judah. And this account, the uh, on this account, that place is called Menaean Dan to this day. Behold, it is the west of Kiriath-Jerim. They passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there is an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the house of Micah and asked him about his welfare. How you doing? You remember us? We were here a few weeks ago. Of course, I remember you. Verse 16. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, sort of at the compound at the house of Micah. Verse 17. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these men went into Micah's house to steal, to steal, that's all they were doing, they were stealing, went into Micah's house and took or stole the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? I mean, I thought we were friends, and now you're, you're robbing my master. And they give him an answer. And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand in your mouth. Shut up. And come with us. And be to us a father, a spiritual father and a priest. And here's why you should do this. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest 
to a tribe and a clan in Israel. You can expand your influence here. I mean, you're a priest for one guy now. We're offering you a better job, a better paying job, where you could be the priest for an entire tribe in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. Yes, this is, uh, I'm upwardly mobile. I'm going to take this job opportunity. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So now, not only is he condoning their stealing, he is a part of the theft in that he himself is carrying the goods away. Verse 21, very interesting verse. I want you to notice what is happening here. So they, that is the Danites, turned, that is, turned away from the house of Micah and departed, departed away from the house of Micah, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. Let's just stop right now, and I want to make an observation that really has nothing to do with the passage itself, but it is a very profound spiritual truth. Get the picture. Here's the house of Micah. Micah's not there when they go in and they rob everything out of his house and take his idols and they take his priest. They turn and they start to head north away from the house of Micah. As they are traveling, they put the women and the children up front and they leave the soldiers in the back. Why? Because they know that when Micah gets home, he's going to be angry and he's going to chase them. Here's the way sin works. When you have something in your past which is wrong or sinful, you have to put an army behind you in order to protect yourself so that your sin will not catch up with you. For if it catches up with you, if your past catches up with you, you're going to need to have some kind of defense. If your sins are forgiven, you don't have to worry about anything that's in your past. But if you've got something in your past that you know is there and it's chasing after you, you've got to put up a defense. They put up a defense knowing that they were going to be pursued, and they were pursued. Verse 22, when they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook or caught up with the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? Why are you chasing me? Like, like Dan or, or like Micah, why don't you just stay home? Why are you chasing me? Here's, here's Micah's response, verse 24. And he, Micah said, you take my gods that I made. Stop right there. Does that not seem a little bit odd to you? You have stolen the gods that I made. How, how powerful can those gods possibly be if you made them, even as Ben read this morning from Isaiah chapter 44? You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us. You need to quiet down a little bit, settle down, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life and the lives of your household. In other words, you're asking, what do you have left? You've still got your life. But if you keep screaming here, there's some knuckleheads in this crowd, and they're going to turn around, they're going to slay you and everybody that's with you. So just shut up and go home. Verse 26, Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. I find it interesting. The people of Dan did not wait for Micah to turn and start going home. They just said, shut up. And they kept going when he saw that he was not going to be able to overtake them. That's when he turns around and he goes home. He still got his life, but his idol is gone. Verse 27 and 28. Here's the battle up in Laish. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. They were an isolated people. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Roab. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. So what do they do? They get there, a very quick battle, kill the people, burn the city to the ground, Re rebuild the city. Verse 29. 
and they named the city Dan, used to be Laish, but they named it Dan, after the name of their ancestor who was born to Israel or born to Jacob. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. There's a lot going on here. I hope you, hope you follow what's happening. The author has intentionally withheld the name of the young priest until now. The reason that he does this is because this young priest is a direct descendant of Moses. Moses is his great, 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 whatever grandfather. If you knew as the reader that this guy was a descendant of Moses, you might be sympathetic to him. So he just calls him the young Levite to this point. At the end, he tells you that he is a direct descendant of Moses. And they go into this city, and in honor of their ancestral head, they change the city from Laish to Dan. Now, uh, uh, several things are at play here. First of all, they are out of bounds from the territory that God had given to the children of Israel. They had property that they were supposed to be living in, wasn't good enough for them. They didn't take it over. They travel all the way to the north. This is the northernmost portion of Israel now at this point. So oftentimes you will hear a description of Israel being called from Dan to Beersheba. What does that mean? That means from as far north as you can go to as far south as you can go. As far north as you can go now is a property which they have confiscated, but it's not part of the allotment that God had given to the children of Israel, and they take it violently. When they go in, they set up idols. As they set up idols when they go in, they make this guy, Jonathan, the descendant of of Moses to be their priest. And what they do is they continue to do this for a very long time. How long a period of time do they do this? They do this until the captivity. Uh, The captivity to Assyria doesn't happen until 722 BC. So his children and grandchildren are going to be serving as pagan priests in this land, land of Dan, for several hundred years. So that's the story. And notice, it's really interesting in verse 31, that they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Shiloh was where the tabernacle was. Shiloh was where prescribed worship was supposed to be happening. They never went to Shiloh. They had their own religion in their own place. Now, that's the story. What are we to make of it? Well, before we move into the two main points, here's how I am setting up the explanation of the text. I want to quote the words of the Apostle Paul, who's writing to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he's telling Timothy, false teachers are going to come into the church. And as they come, there are going to be several ways that you can identify them and here's one of them. Second Timothy chapter three, verse five. Very strange, very ironic. One of the features of false teachers and false religion is this. Having the appearance or the form or the external or the ritual or the ritualistic appearance of godliness. In other words, they look godly on the outside but denying its power, denying the power thereof. Paul tells Timothy, avoid such people. Get as far away from them as you can. In other words, young Timothy, when you look at these people on the outside, they're going to appear to be very religious, and they are seemingly going to be committed to God. There is an appearance or a form of godliness, but in reality, they don't know God at all. They are not saved. They are powerless to produce actual holiness, uh, at their core, they are hollow and, 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 and shallow and empty and ungodly. They're hypocrites. They don't know God, but they look like they know God. As we analyze Judges chapters 17 and 18, here's our two points for today. Point number one, and that is the appearance or the form of godliness. There's a lot in this chapter that looks very godly. And then point number two, 
the reality of ungodliness. Point number one, the form or the appearance of godliness. In Judges chapters 17 and 18, we are not reading a secular story. This is a very spiritual story. There's a lot of religion here. Uh, Many times God is mentioned, and he is mentioned as Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, times without number by the characters in this story. And some of some of the actions and the words of the people in this story appear to be and actually are somewhat virtuous. Now, I assume that you were listening as I was reading, so I'm not going to go back and give you chapter and verse for all of these things. I'm going to assume that you were listening and that you remember the story, basically. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through the story, and I'm going to try to demonstrate that there were a lot of things that these people did which were good. I think I came up with about 18 of them. I'm not going to enumerate, but I'm just going to fly through them very quickly. First of all, Micah's name was Micah, and his parents named him Micah, which means who is like our God. He has somewhat of the fear of God because his mother threatens with a curse. And so he confesses to stealing the money, and he returns all of the money. He doesn't keep any of it for himself. This guy didn't get caught. He confessed. He turned himself in. His mother appears to be godly in that she forgives him and she blesses him. And she verbally says that she is going to dedicate the money to the Lord, to Yahweh. Micah consecrates or ordains both his son and the Levite. And as I said, this is a very involved process. This isn't a storefront church. He's not just like, poof, you're a priest. But he goes through the process of ordaining or consecrating both his son and the priest. He removes his son from being a priest because his son isn't from the right tribe. The prescribed tribe is the tribe of Levi. He sees a value in having a priest from God's commanded people. And so he's very happy about that. He desires to have a spiritual father. He pays the priest well. He's very generous. There are a lot of pastors who don't have enough to eat because the church doesn't pay them well enough. This particular guy, Micah, is paying his priest very well. And he believes that he's going to receive blessings from the Lord because he is obedient. He is looking to the Lord to be the one to bless him. Even when we look at these Danites, they have a form of godliness. They inquire of God as to whether or not they are going to be successful. The young priest offers Dan a blessing, the peace of God and the eye of God be upon you. The Danites acknowledge when they go back and give the report to their fellow countrymen, it is God who is going to give this property into our land. The Danites want the ministry of this Levite to expand beyond one family. The influence for the kingdom of God will be greater if you can minister to an entire tribe. They want the influence of this man to be amplified. And they respect their ancestral patriarch, Dan, and they name the city after him. And the kicker, the real kicker, is that this priest comes from the line of, that is, he is a direct descendant of the man who established Israel as a nation, Moses. In other words, this man, Jonathan's great-great-great-great-grandfather is stinking George Washington, okay? That is who this guy is. He is from spiritual royalty. Do you see it? These people are religious, They are God-conscious. They have a sensitivity to sin. They forgive. They are generous. They are genuine in some of their efforts to worship in the right way. And they respect their Jewish heritage. These people are far more invested in the things of God than 95% of modern-day Americans. We're living in a secular society where you can't even say the word God. These people were very into God. There was absolutely the form of godliness in Judges 17 and 18. And I want to say that of those 18 things that I spelled out, there's nothing wrong with any of them. And they would have been fine 
if, I-F, if the rest of their lives were in line with the Word of God. Now you listen to me, and you listen good. This is important. See, the danger is not so much that these people were ungodly. And they were ungodly. Undoubtedly, they were ungodly. Here's the danger. The danger is that their godliness was mixed with elements of sin. And sin was mixed with elements of true godliness and vice versa. There's syncretism here. There's hypocrisy here. There is ethical and moral and spiritual schizophrenia going on here. There are things that they do well, and there are things that they do not do well, and they are coexisting. And so there is absolutely the form or the appearance of godliness in Judges 17 and 18. But as we move on to point number two, I want you to note that the form was hollow and the form was meaningless. It was empty. It was void. Point number two, the reality of ungodliness. All of their religion is mixed with blatant expressions of sin. Micah dishonors his mother by stealing from her. She commits 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord, but she only gives 200. What was dedicated to the Lord was used to make idols and carved images. Uh, Micah's non-Levite son is a priest. Uh, Micah has a non-sanctioned house of worship in his home. House of worship was in Shiloh, not in your house, Micah. The young Levite has no sense of loyalty, and he is working for the highest bidder. The spies from Dan actually steal from Micah. The tribe of Dan attacks and brutally kills and burns an entire village of people who were unsuspecting and not prepared. And it was outside of their allotted property. They pirate Micah's priest. They set up idolatry in their new city, which lasted for centuries. Are you aware this place of Dan was a place of idol worship for centuries? Remember when the kingdom divided? The south has Jerusalem. It has the temple, has the Holy of Holies. It's where you're supposed to go to worship. King Jeroboam to the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, says, hey, you people don't need to be traveling down to Jerusalem anymore. We're going to make it more convenient for you to worship. We're going to set up two places of worship for you. One of them is going to be in Bethel, and we're going to put idols there, not worship of the true and living God, but worship nonetheless in Bethel. You know where the other one was? In Dan. So wherever you're closest, that's where you can go and worship. And for hundreds of years, this place of Dan was a place of idol worship. Micah didn't worship God. He worshiped a God of his own making. The young Levite didn't work for God. He worked for himself. He just used aspects of true biblical worship in order to advance his career. The tribe of Dan was not making a God-ordained conquest of the land. They were pirates and thugs and robbers and arsonists and thieves and bullies and murderers. The entire story has these puzzling elements of worship and true godliness, but at its very heart, all of their religion was hollow and vain and false because right alongside of their godliness was the reality of ungodliness. You see, not all ungodly people are secular or irreligious. Judges 17 and 18 teach us that it is very possible to be very religious and still not know God. Furthermore, these chapters teach us that it's very possible to be doing some things which are correct in the Christian life and simultaneously be deep in sin. Picture it this way. Judges 17 and 18 are like two railroad tracks that are running down a line. And they are running parallel to one another. They are functional. 
in that they are the proper distance apart from one another, and a train can move on them, and a train can move swiftly and unimpeded. The one line, the one rail is this. Godliness, generosity, confessing your sin, praying to God, inquiring of God, being sacrificial. That one line is clear in Judges 17 and 18. But there is another rail that's running parallel to it, and it says greed and theft and murder and idolatry. And they are running right beside one another. And they function without a problem. And never once does one rail ever challenge or criticize or point out the wrong in the other track. They move along nicely like a speeding locomotive. Well, the question is, how can these two worldviews exist without any hint of conflict? And the text gives us the answer. And you know what the answer is. The answer is found in the formula, the four-time pronounced formula, that there was no king in Israel. No spiritual leadership, no example, no spiritual law enforcement. Does it not seem strange to you? Is you're reading the story. I hope you were confused as I read the story. Like, what? Does it not seem strange to you that, that, that Micah never said to his mother, hey, mom, uh, so far so good. You gave 200, but you said you were going to give 1,100. Where's the other 900? Not a word. Not challenged at all. Does it not seem strange to you that, that, that this woman is dedicating this to the Lord and that which she is dedicating to the Lord are carved images or idols? And Micah never says, hey, mom, you, you can't do that. Or does it seem a little bit strange to you that the priest, who is Micah's son, says, hey, dad, I can't be a priest. I, I'm, I'm from the wrong tribe. We're from the wrong tribe. And it goes on and on and on. There is such incongruity here. Nobody seems to challenge the morals or the theology or the faith of anyone else. Why? Because there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no spiritual leadership. How in the world... Do you call yourself a Christian and at the same time your children look like and talk like and behave like the children of the world? I'll tell you exactly why. Because there is no spiritual leadership in the home. Uh, parents simply do not know how to lead their children and they don't care that they don't know how. And so you can, on the one hand, be a Christian be a baptized Christian, be a church member who is a baptized Christian, and at the same time have this pagan home and this incongruity, and they are running side by side, and never is there ever any kind of conflict. None. No king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the point of Judges 17 and 18. Everybody in this story is doing exactly what they feel like doing. And let me just tell you honestly, this is me. This, this honestly is me, and it is you. Left to ourselves, what we want to do is what we want to do. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. There's none that seeks after God, no, not one. Left to ourselves, this is the way that we are. And God and his word have no practical bearing upon how the people in this story live. Several years ago, I was told a story by one of the members of our church, and he explained to me a ministry that he was in in college. And I said, what was it like? And he said, well, we would meet on Thursday night, and the gospel would be preached, and the students would sing, and they would be very emotionally engaged in the singing, and they would listen attentively to the word, and they would come faithfully, and they would work really hard to, to set up the chairs and set up the sound system and, and to do all of the activities and everything. They were 
really into the ministry. And then as a block, as a block, as the ministry would end on Thursday night, they would collectively go to the bar and get hammered. But the weird thing was, as I was told this story, is that nobody would ever say anything to anybody else about whether this was right or wrong. They lived in both worlds. Incongruity, it was never discussed. Both railroad tracks ran parallel. Nobody said, wait a minute. Well, I want you to know that God does not have a neutral view of half-hearted, duplicitous worship. God does not like partially sincere people. The partial pagan and the partial Christian self-styled life of ungodliness mixed with godliness, it's not something that God is neutral about. God doesn't say, you know what, at least they're going to church, at least they got baptized, that's, ah, that's all right, you know, I mean, I mean, we got that going for us, which is nice, but on the other hand, well, there really isn't any expression of the pursuit of holiness over here, oh, that is displeasing to me, but at least they're a little bit religious. God says, I hate that religion. I intensely hate that religion. That religion is putrefying to me. Turn to the book of Amos. God is not neutral about half-hearted religion. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24 God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assembly. So you don't like it when we come together for worship. God says, I hate it. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them, look upon them favorably. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I want to plug my ears. I, I cannot stand to listen to you sing and watch you raise your hands and see these tears rolling down your cheeks. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Here's what I really want. You want to know what I want? But let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He wants sincerity in the inward parts and not an outward show of religiosity. Five points of application based upon Judges 17 and 18. Let me forewarn you, they are rather direct. So put your seatbelt on. Application point number one, stay as far away as you can from the Roman Catholic Church. Run and run as fast as you can and have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it because Judges 17 and 18 is embodied in the Roman Catholic Church. Railroad tracks. Here we go. There are things about the Roman Catholic Church which are correct. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in the Trinity they have a Bible, they have added books to their Bible, but they actually have the Word of God. They are outspoken against abortion, more so than we are. There are things about the Roman Catholic Church which are absolutely too true and correct. There is another railroad track that is running right here within the Church of Rome, and that is that they pray to Mary and to saints, and in so doing, they deny the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You don't pray to saints, you don't go to a priest, you certainly don't pray to Mary. They have carved images everywhere. They assign salvific properties to Holy Communion. Transubstantiation, in some way, that wafer, that cup, is going to add to or contribute to your salvation. They teach that salvation is by faith plus works. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and it is not of works. They believe that Christ continues to be sacrificed when the Mass is celebrated. They don't believe that Christ 
suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, and that it was a one-time sacrifice on the part of Christ. They do not have the same authority that we have. Our authority is the Bible alone. Their authority is the Bible plus whatever the Pope says. It's a non-biblical, false religion. Stay far away from it. And, And to be fair, and to be fair, if they are consistent, they should think the same thing about us. I do not respect a Roman Catholic person who thinks that I am going to heaven, because according to their dogma, I am not. I believe in faith alone, in Christ alone. They do not. It is a non-biblical false religion which is eternally damning billions of people over centuries. Micah, you can't call yourself a man of God and at the same time have a household idols. Likewise, you cannot call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, and follow the teachings of Rome. And you say, well, they seem like nice people. They are nice people. They're delightful people, but that's not the issue. Their doctrine is from Satan. Get away from it. Get far away from it. Application point number two, more personal. Learn how to become uncomfortable with inconsistencies and address those inconsistencies, inconsistencies in your own life and inconsistencies in the lives of others, but mostly inconsistencies in your own heart and life. Learn how to look at what is going on in your family, in your life, and say, wait a minute. This doesn't match. This doesn't seem right. The emperor is butt naked. What do you mean his new pair of clothes? This isn't right. Learn to look at what is going on and say, it's not right. I'm a living contradiction. You call yourself Dan after the son of Jacob, and yet you become the hub for idolatry? Wait a minute. That, that, That doesn't line up. You say Jesus is Lord, but, but you, but you go and you get drunk. Guys, go to a Bible study on Thursday night or go and get drunk, but don't do both. One or the other. Get off the fence. You say Jesus is Lord, and yet you have a half-hearted commitment to the local church. You show up every once in a while, but, but you're not really involved. You say Jesus is Lord, but you are a slave to pornography or to video games. Who do, who do you think you're fooling? You're mainly fooling yourself, but you're certainly not fooling God. And it needs to happen in our interactions with one another. If we see someone who has wandered from the path, We need to, in love, go after that person and bring them back. It's not okay for someone to be living inconsistently with their profession of faith. As a loving Christian, you need to go to them, in love, speak to them, and challenge them. How is it that you call yourself a Christian, but yet you are dating an unbeliever? Explain that to me. Can you please explain to me how you call yourself a Christian, and yet you know virtually nothing about the Bible? Wait a minute, you say that you're saved, but yet you are so harsh with your spouse and your children. Be aware of inconsistencies and be discontent with inconsistencies and go to Jesus to forgive your inconsistencies. Repent and be cleansed by his blood. Confess your inconsistencies and live consistently. Either be a Christian or not. How long will you differ between two opinions? Either follow Christ or don't. But, 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 but this can't continue. The two tracks can't continue. One or the other. Number three. Do, James 1.22, be doers of the word, do what is right in God's eyes. The only way to be able to do this is to read the Bible and immediately act upon it. Please understand who I am. <clears throat> I am a pastor. I've been studying the Bible for a very long time. As a pastor, there are many things which I do not understand about the Bible. I I, I have misconceptions about what is in the Bible. I am misinformed at places. I'm sure there are things I said this morning which are incorrect. If I knew what those things were, I would change them right away. 
but I am finite and I am fallen. I need to read the Bible in order to get my mind, which, which is gravitationally pulling away from the Word of God, back to truth. My affections do not naturally move in the direction of God and worship. I, 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 I am by nature an idolater. And, and there is none righteous, no, not one. I am a sinner. I'm a fallen sinner. What do I need? I need the Bible. I need to read the Bible, not so that I can prepare a sermon for you so that you could understand it, but I need to read the Bible, not so that I can win a theological debate. I need the Bible because I need to be corrected and I need to be sanctified. Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. You need the word of God and you need to read it and act upon it immediately in your thinking, your emotions, and your behavior. There's this nonsensical idea that says you just need to follow your heart. No, you don't. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You need the Bible. You need the Word of God. Number four, you need the local church. Be committed to the local church. Join a local church. Micah had this self-styled, make-it-up-as-you-go, homebrew religion. There was no God-ordained sanction or authority that he had to set up this shrine in his home. The local church is God's ordained means to live the Christian life and to advance the kingdom. So the Danites who refused to go to Shiloh and said, no, we're just going to set up our own little thing here way up north in Dan... That was ungodly. And in the same way, if you claim to be a Christian and yet you are not a committed, active church member in a Bible-preaching local church, you are Micah. You are the Danites. You are doing what is right in your own eyes. You are doing religion on your own terms. You are under no spiritual authority. You are doing what is right in your own eyes. Being a member is not just having your name on the roll, but it is being committed and invested with all that is in you to that which God has ordained as your spiritual means of growth. And so by claiming to be saved and yet having no formal commitment to the local church, you are a Micah-like contradiction. See application number two, do not be content with living a contradiction. And finally, and most importantly, Number five, own Jesus as your king. Own Christ as your king. You see, four times in Judges when it says there was no king in Israel, and then it goes on to describe in the epilogue these crazy stories of this wacky, bizarre, ungodly behavior. What it is anticipating, listen to me, is a king. And so along comes Saul, he ain't the king. And then along comes David. He might be the king. Oh, nope, he's not the king. How about Solomon? He builds the temple. Nope, he's not the king. And neither is Hezekiah, and neither is Josiah, and neither are any of them. There is a king which is anticipated here, which offers spiritual leadership and spiritual protection, and that king is Jesus and Jesus alone. He alone offers perfect spiritual leadership. See, there's a Levite here that leaves Bethlehem, and he leaves Bethlehem for the purpose of going and making a life for himself. You know what Jesus does? He leaves Bethlehem in order to find a place where he can lay down his life as a ransom for many. That, that's the kind of king you need. He's not a priest who can be bought by the highest bidder. Satan thought he could be, but he wasn't. He's a priest who gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross for sinners like you and me so that we could be forgiven. That's the kind of king that we need. He's not a king who's going to find people who are unsuspecting and murder them and burn them. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not perish, will not perish, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. He's the king who laid down his life for the sheep. He's not a king who agreed to give it all, and then when it got tough, he decided to only give part. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's kneeling down. He is sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. He realizes the next day he's going to have to endure the wrath of God, and he's praying, Father, if there is any other way, 
I'll give you 200. I'm going to keep 900 for myself. If there's any other way, no. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he lays down all 1,100 on the cross, and there he bears the wrath of God. That's the kind of king that we need. Jesus gave it all. Jesus paid it all. He's not a king who leads his people into vain idolatry. He's a king who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high as a functional mediator, and he offers people peace with God and true joy and true worship. You see, without Jesus, you know what our lives are? Our lives are spent doing things that are right in our own eyes. That is the path to sadness, and that is the path to hell. But by owning Jesus as king, bowing before him and yielding allegiance to him and believing that he died in your place, crying out to him for mercy, believing that he rose and that he, he's alive to be your savior today, by repenting before him as Lord and saying, I- I'm sorry, I've been on this track. I've got this wickedness that's in my family, in my heart, and I am not going to be the compromiser anymore. This track is leading me to hell. I am all in for Jesus. He is my king. He gave his all for me. I will submit fully to him. By owning Jesus as king and bowing before him as Lord, that leads to life and to life abundant and life eternal. And only Jesus as king can offer that. See, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Look at me. Today, there is a king. And he is with us now. And he wants you to call upon him and be saved. Father in heaven, our inconsistency, our incongruity, our hypocrisy, our appearance of godliness is putrefying to you, Lord, and it should be. Lord, we no longer want to be like us. Lord, we want to be like your son. Oh, Lord, please send him into our midst to protect us and to lead us. Lord, for those that don't know you, to save us. Lord, may we be subjects, loyal subjects to King Jesus and cry upon him now, Lord. Cause us by your spirit to cry out to him now. And in his name we pray. Amen.